uh, add my welcome to you if you're uh, along here for the night at NYC. It's great to have you along. Uh, my name's Ben, I'm a staff worker at the University of Western Australia. And uh, over this week, we're spending these evening sessions digging into what the Bible has to say about navigating life. Uh, many people here, uh, many of the students, are facing fairly major decisions in the next few years. Uh, you might not be a student, but you might be facing big decisions yourself. So I thought I'd give you a moment, just before we get into the guts of the talk, to uh, maybe just jot down some decisions that you're facing, uh, particularly what a, a couple of big decisions you might be facing in the not too distant future. Uh, or you might like to talk to the person next to you uh, about what they are. So let me give you a couple of minutes just to do that, and uh, then we'll get into it. So, go for it. Who cares about conflicts or weak mixes? 
not going to change my life. But those decisions, those other ones, what job, what whether I get married, who I might get married to, those do seem like pretty life-changing decisions, and we rightly want to honour God in them. So what I'm aiming to do tonight is to continue doing what we've been doing over the last couple of talks, to continue putting together a framework for biblical decision-making. How does God guide us to make good decisions about life? We particularly need God's guidance about big decisions. Uh, but when it comes to those decisions, we need to be sure that we're actually asking the right questions. Because if we ask the wrong questions, it just creates problems. Let me give you an example. Say so you're playing Monopoly. Someone rolls the dice, they land on Mayfair, and they say, okay, so what dance do I need to do when I land on blue? And that might be an entirely sincere question. They might feel like that's very important for the game. And so you scratch your head for a bit and you think, well, I'm not exactly sure about that. I'm not sure about the dance you do when you land on blue. So you turn to the Monopoly scriptures. You open up the manual. And you discover that the manual doesn't actually answer your question. So you start kind of reading stuff into the manual. You start looking for references to blue, or maybe you just sort of flip it open and hope that you'll land at the right spot. <laughs> or you just chuck out the manual and go, well, this doesn't give me the information I need. Maybe I need to look for something else. Maybe I need to read into the circumstances of what's going on. See, Parker Brothers have made the $50 notes blue. Maybe that's some kind of hint about what you're supposed to do. Maybe when you land on blue, you should do a dance that has 50 different moves in it. Or maybe you just pray and you ask God to give you an impression about what kind of dance he wants you to do. See, the questions that you ask are actually important. This morning we looked at the issue of how God guides and we saw that God promises to guide by the Bible and the Holy Spirit. He's entirely capable of guiding in any way that he wants to. But the ways he particularly promises to guide are by the Bible and the Holy Spirit. But I hinted that there's a bit of a problem with that, isn't there? Because it's all well and good to say that the Bible and the Holy Spirit, the Bible applied by the Holy Spirit, is sufficient for my guidance. After all, all scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the person of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's just that it doesn't seem to answer the questions that I've got. It gives me broad outlines, but it doesn't give me the detailed, specific information that I want. It doesn't give me the personal guidance about my life that I would like. I mean, it does tell me not to commit adultery, and that's very helpful. But it doesn't tell me whether I should marry Billy Joe or Mary Lou. It doesn't tell me whether I should do a ministry apprenticeship with CU or whether I should serve God in a secular job. It doesn't tell me about where I should live or what course I should study or whether I should go to all three 18ths that are happening on the same night or should I just go to one? In fact, 
There seems to be an awful lot that the Bible doesn't tell us. And a lot of those are things that I'd really like to know. I'd really like God's guidance on them. So because the Bible doesn't give us the details that we want about some of our biggest questions, there's a kind of logical process that people go through. I might get Sean to pop this slide up for us. I think, uh, sorry, next one. That's the one. Uh, so the logic is firstly that God wants me to make good decisions, right? Secondly, God doesn't tell me what to do about lots of decisions. Okay? The Bible doesn't tell me what to do about lots of decisions. And therefore, step three, there must be some other way that God tells me what to do. Now, I would say that that is not a stupid approach. That is a perfectly logical approach. And so we start looking for some way that God will guide us outside the Bible. Something that will give us more detailed, personalised guidance. Might be uh, someone who claims that God speaks directly to them. That God tells them everything uh, that we might need to know. Might be about reading circumstances. I can't decide whether to marry Billy Joe or Mary Lou. They seem equally good options, but then when I rang Billy Joe the other night, she picked up after two rings. Two rings. It's a sign God wants me to marry Billy Joe. Except we have an engagement ring as well, don't we? So maybe it should have been three rings. Oh, it's very confusing. <laughs> or we start searching for some kind of inner prompting or impression about what we ought to do. I feel more drawn to Mary Lou rather than Billy Joe. And so that must be the Holy Spirit guiding. Now it is true that we do get impressions. We do get inner promptings. We do get thoughts that pop into our heads about certain things. But I'm going to let you in on the secret. Everyone does. Doesn't matter whether you're Christian. Everyone has thoughts and feelings popping into their heads and hearts. It's not necessarily a sign that it's from God. It might be. Might not. It just seems to happen to us humans. Well, there's another possibility that we we do stick with the Bible, but we sort of treat it like a magic book because it doesn't give me the specific information I want. Oh, Lord, who should I marry? Well, so I flip it open and I hit Ezekiel 44, 22. You know that one, right? <laughs> they must not marry widows or divorced women. They may marry only virgins of Israelite descent or widows of priests. And so suddenly I'm on Ancestry.com and I'm <laughs> trying to find out who amongst my friends is of Jewish descent. It's a sign from God. And I kind of end up treating the Bible a little bit like a magic eight ball. You know those things where you ask it a question and you shake it and it says, yes, no, maybe, wait a minute, that kind of thing. But that's a bizarre way to treat God's word, isn't it? Because the power of the Bible is not that it's some kind of magic that flips open like something out of Harry Potter to give me an answer completely out of context. 
Now, the power of the Bible is that it's true. That it tells the truth about God and us. What God is doing in the world to deal with the problem of sin. Who Jesus is. What our future is. The power of the Bible is that it tells the truth. So I want to suggest that actually, although this process here is quite logical, God wants me to make good decisions, the Bible doesn't tell me what to do about lots of decisions, and therefore there must be some other way that God tells me what to do. But when you stop and think about it, it actually contains a massive hidden assumption. Namely that it assumes that God thinks there are right and wrong decisions that we can make, that he says nothing about in the Bible. But there is an alternative possibility, isn't there? What if in those decisions that God says nothing specific about in the Bible, he actually doesn't mind what I do? What if God doesn't actually mind whether I ask out Billy Joe or Mary Lou? So we need to come back to the sufficiency of the Bible that we looked at this morning. So what it teaches... What does the Bible teach? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, God is saying to us there in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible tells us everything we need to know about the issues that matter to God. It actually tells us everything, everything we need to know about how to live a life that pleases God. Some of those things that he tells us might be rather surprising to you. So, for example, our culture doesn't think it matters who you sleep with, as long as they're a consenting adult. Turns out that God is actually quite concerned about that. He says a number of things about it. On the other hand, we think that what job we get is quite important. But you can scour the Bible as long as you like. And God never tells you anything about how good a specific job to get. Now, was God unaware of that? Did he kind of slip up in the proofread that he forgot to include the critical chapter on which specific job you should get? Of course not. He didn't accidentally leave out the critical verse that says, Ben Ray, whatever you do, make sure that you become a ballet dancer. No. When God says that the Bible contains everything necessary to thoroughly equip you and me for every good work, well, it means what it says. And so that must mean that I can be fully equipped for every good work without God telling me precisely whether I should get married or who I should get married to or what job I ought to do or any number of other questions. And that must also mean that what the Bible doesn't teach is important. Not because I need some other way of finding out God's will for me in those situations, but because when it's silent about some area, God actually doesn't mind what I choose. He's given me freedom to choose for myself. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because it means that we need to seriously rethink what's important to God and what's not. Because we've got these ideas of 
you know, what are the important decisions that I face? Which ones are trivial? But where did I get those ideas from? Well, frequently it's not from the Bible. Frequently it's from the surrounding culture. I've absorbed them from friends and family, from uni, from Facebook. But if God doesn't address the questions that I have, then I'm actually asking the wrong questions. So what does God care about? What matters matter to God? Well, come with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. Want to know what God's will is? Here it is. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, that is Christ. Here's God's will. Here's the will that he has revealed to you. His will is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. That's actually very useful guidance. It has some significant implications for the choices that I make. Like we saw on Monday night, it means that I should choose to live under Christ's headship, to seek to bring others under his headship too. But do I need to be anywhere specific to do that? Can I do it in Morocco, but not at UWA? Or at Curtin, but not in Morocco? Can I do it as a doctor, but not as a garbage man? I presume, actually, you can live in line with God's will to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, Christ, wherever you are, whatever job you're doing. We looked at Romans 8 this morning as well. What's God's purpose? What's his will? Well, it's that we be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So does what I study at uni affect my ability to be like Jesus? Do I need to quit sports science and take up carpentry so that I can be more like him? <laughs> no, actually, the course I study makes no difference to me becoming like Jesus. I can be godly as a sports science student. I can be godly as an art student. I can be godly doing neither. I can be godly not going to uni at all. Ephesians 5.17, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. What is the Lord's will? It's his will for you. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Well, he leads me to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, to sing and make music in my heart to the Lord, to give thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's revealed will for you. That's the work of his spirit. Now, does what car you drive affect your ability to sing and make music in your heart to the Lord? Well, I can make an argument that I'd be more joyful with a Ferrari. <laughs> but I can actually sing and make music in my heart to the Lord in a Ferrari or in a Ford Festiva. 
on foot for that matter. As long as you can encourage others with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, well, does it really matter whether you're married to Freddie or to Engelbert? Poor old Engelbert. First Thessalonians 5.16 is similar. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So when can you be joyful? When can you pray? When can you give thanks? Well, always, continually, and in all circumstances. That's God's will for you. Perhaps First Thessalonians 4.3 sums it up best. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What is God's will? That we be sanctified, that we be holy. That's what matters to God. So it turns out God doesn't actually care very much how good I am at uni. But it does matter to him a lot how I go about it. It matters a great deal to him if I cheat or if I'm rude to people or if I'm lazy or if I'm self-indulgent. God cares very much about that. The grade that I get or the course that I do, not so much. He doesn't actually mind. What matters to God is that we're sanctified. So that has some big implications for what's important and what's trivial. And they might not to be, turn out to be what you expect. So here's some things that turn out to be thoroughly trivial as far as God's concerned. Where you live. Whether you marry. Within certain parameters, who you marry. Whether you're a successful entrepreneur or a part-time toilet cleaner. God doesn't mind. Society says that those are massively important decisions. Actually, what's important to God is how you live. It matters greatly to God how you drive. Whether you're reckless and impatient, honking your horn and swearing at people who can't merge properly. That matters a great deal to him. And there are an awful lot of people who can't merge properly. It is true. But how you treat them matters to God. How you treat people at supper tonight, whether you talk loudly outside their rooms late at night, those are big issues for God because they have a lot to do with your godliness, with your sanctification. Whether you marry Bill or Bob, Jane or Jill, well, not so much. Now you might say, well, that's a very interesting theory, Ben, that's very provocative. But is it really how the Bible talks? And if that's what you're thinking, that is right. That is an excellent thing to be thinking. That's exactly what you should be thinking, because don't take my word for it. I'm just giving you a guided tour of the Bible, but you've got to actually go and live in it. You need to explore it. You need to check it out for yourself. You need to check whether my guided tour is an accurate reflection of the Bible. But I think it is. Well, let's have a look at uh, one particular place. Come with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17. We look at um, 1 Corinthians 7 a bit over the course of NYC because it's actually a really helpful chapter in thinking through decision-making. Uh, most of the chapter happens to be about marriage, but the bit we're going to look at today isn't really. Uh, Paul has been talking about marriage, but here in the middle of the chapter... 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. He steps back from that particular issue 
And he says some things that are relevant to marriage, but relevant to a whole bunch of other things as well. So here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. See what Paul's saying here? What God's saying through Paul? Saying that people should stay in the situation they were in when they were called, that is, when they became Christians. But why? Why should they stay in the same place? Is it because it's really important to God that you stay in the same place? That you don't change your circumstances when you become a Christian? Well, have a look at verses 18 and 19. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. <laughs> is it really important to God that if you're uncircumcised, you stay uncircumcised? Or if you're circumcised, you try to become uncircumcised? Well, no, actually. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. So you might as well stay in whatever situation you're in. It just doesn't matter. It's the same with being married or single or slave or free. If you become a Christian, you don't suddenly need to change your circumstances, unless you're doing something outright ungodly. If you become a Christian as a single person, you don't need to suddenly get married, because it's somehow impossible to be Christian as a single person. No, of course not. You can be perfectly godly as a single person. If you're a slave, you don't need to make a sudden bolt for freedom. Whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's a shocking thing to say, isn't it? But can you be godly as a slave? Yeah, actually you can. Will being free make you more godly? No. Although it does have some obvious advantages in terms of being able to serve God to do what you want in that respect. So Paul says that if you do have the opportunity to go free, well then do it. But it's actually not our circumstances that determine our godliness. Yet we think it is all the time. We think, oh, if only my situation were different, then I'd be able to be godly. If, if only, maybe if I moved overseas, then I'd be more godly. Or, or maybe if I changed course, I'd be more godly. Or maybe if I did this or that. But it's actually not our circumstances that determine our godliness. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. So like we saw this morning, Guidance actually equals obedience. Doing what God has said clearly in his word, that really matters to God. It matters a great deal. But everything else, it really doesn't. Why is that? Well, because of verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Paul actually understands that God has been sovereign in your decisions. 
even the decisions you made before you became a Christian. It's the place that the Lord assigned to you. And so you're free to stay there in the situation that God called you in. You're free to change if you want to, but you don't need to, you don't have to. You can be godly in either situation. Now, in all this, uh, we run the risk of getting the impression that God doesn't actually care about you, that he doesn't care about your decisions, but that's not right. Actually, God cares about you enormously. He cares about you deeply. He actually knows how many hairs are on your head. But he's a little bit like me with my daughters. I care deeply about them. I love them to bits. And it matters greatly to me if I say to them, no, don't hit mummy. And they hit her again. That really matters to me. There's going to be trouble. But when it comes to which toy they play with, I just don't mind. Not because I don't care about them, but because I care about them so much that I'm going to be delighted whatever they choose. Even when I know exactly which one they're going to choose. And if they ask me which one they should play with, I'll say, play with whichever one you like. I don't mind. And I'll wait and I'll watch and I'll delight to see them play in whichever one, with whichever one they choose. It's not that God doesn't care about your decisions. He cares deeply. He just doesn't mind about them. As long as you are doing what he has commanded. Well, you can't mark it up. So when we come to looking at decisions, we can see that there are quite a few, uh, well, that there are a few different factors in operation. So uh, I've got a diagram here, uh, if we can go to that diagram, that I reckon is really helpful for decision making. I'm not sure if you can see it all from uh, up the back, but uh, I'll talk it through and see how it goes. So the first element of this diagram is right and wrong. God gives me very clear instructions in the Bible about what is right and what is wrong. So if I'm wondering, should I tell the cooks that I haven't had dinner when I actually have, so that I can get seconds of early? Well, the answer is a very clear no. no. That would be wrong. That would be lying. God is very clear that he doesn't want us to lie. Well, what about how I drive my car. Does the Bible say anything about that? Yeah, actually it does. It says a great deal about it. One thing tells me to submit to the governing authorities, which tells me an awful lot already, doesn't it? About what side of the road to drive on, how fast to go, what to do at a red light. God also tells me to be slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that he desires. So that's got some significant implications for how I treat other drivers. But actually, in most decisions, there's vastly more area of right than there is of wrong. See, I can drive to any suburb I like in Perth. I can drive across Australia if I want. I can drive at any time of the day or night, assuming I'm certain peas. There's a huge range of choices that are right. And that's actually true for most decisions. There's a few things that God says, don't do this. But 
there's a huge range of freedom. There's a few other things to say about right and wrong, though. Uh, firstly, we shouldn't be aiming just to get away with as little righteousness as possible. Like, how physical can I be with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it technically counts as sex? I know I'm not supposed to do that before I'm married, but how far can I go? Uh, actually, that just shows that I'm not really interested in living righteously at all. I actually want to be wicked, I just don't want to get in trouble for it. I don't want God to smite me. No, that's not the right way to live, is it? It's not really loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, or loving our neighbour as ourselves. No, we want to actually become more like Christ. We want to be as much like Christ as possible, not as little like Christ we can be and still sort of not get into trouble for it. So we want to aim for righteousness, not just getting away with as much as possible. Secondly, actually the context can affect whether a decision is right or wrong. Uh, I hope you're starting to see that in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that you're looking at in your small groups. It's perfectly fine to uh, go to a dinner party at a friend's place to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. But if another Christian is there and they say, well, hang on a minute, I'm not really sure that we should be doing that. Should we really be eating this stuff? Well, it actually becomes wrong to eat it at that point. Not because eating it is wrong in itself, but because you might cause your weaker brother or sister to stumble. You might know it's okay, but you're still going to lead them to go against their conscience to do something that they think is disobedient to God. And they're going to choose to do that disobedience. They may be wrong about it, but actually they're still damaging their conscience, turning their back on him, choosing to do something that they believe is wrong. Context matters. Like Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Or to quote one of my friends, you can be totally right and still suck. (laughs) And thirdly, motives are important. See, I can tell the truth because I love you. Or I can tell the truth because I hate you. (laughs) Does my bum look big in these jeans? Sure does. (laughs) But, you know, it'd look big in any pants. So, hey. Why we do things matters to God. It matters that we do the right thing. But it also matters why we do it. Because God wants more than external conformity. He actually wants people whose hearts are being transformed. Whose motives are becoming increasingly like the motives of Christ. So there's the first part of the diagram. I need to make a right choice rather than a wrong one. And there is an awful lot of right area. It's deliberate that that black line between right and wrong is so low. There's a lot of right decisions to be made. A lot of freedom. But as well as that sort of right-wrong line, there's also a kind of important trivial axis. Because some decisions are just trivial. Whether I eat an apple or an orange, 
Well, that is trivial. Like we saw in one of the other talks, it might have significant consequences. It might take me long to eat the orange. I might get hit by a car on the way to work because I was 30 seconds later than I thought I'd be. But actually, the decision itself is trivial. God doesn't mind whether you eat an apple or an orange. The trivia is trivia. Don't get hung up on it. God's perfectly happy in those areas for you to do what you want. To eat the apple or the orange or neither or both. He doesn't mind. You're free to do what you want as long as you're godly in the way that you do it. The final element we've got there on the line is uh, sort of wise, naive, foolish. God wants me to make wise decisions, not naive or foolish ones. But we're going to explore that one a bit more tomorrow night, so I won't go into too much detail now. What I will do, though, is show you an example of how this kind of decision-making uh, diagram plays out at one particular point in the Bible. So why don't you come with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus has uh, been crucified, he's been raised from the dead, he's ascended into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, we're told that in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in his ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, but there he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Aquabama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the eleven apostles. Now do you see what the disciples are doing here? Judas has betrayed Jesus, he's gone and hanged himself, and the disciples conclude from studying the Bible that they need to choose someone to replace him. Now, they're in the slightly odd position of having psalms written about this specific situation. But I think the principle still holds. They see that the Bible is clear that it is important to choose someone to replace Judas. That's a matter of right and wrong. They must choose someone to replace him. But then the question is, well, who do we choose? We've got 120 people here. We only need one. And the Bible doesn't tell us which specific one. So, what do they do? Well, actually, they use their wisdom. 
They go, why do we need someone to replace Judas? Well, it's so that he can become a witness with us of Jesus' resurrection. So who would be the wisest choice? Well, someone who's been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. Because if they've known Jesus that whole time, then they're better able to testify to his resurrection. So that whittles the field down to two people, Joseph and Matthias. And as far as the disciples can work out, these two guys seem like equally good choices. <coughs> so what are they going to do? Right, how do I decide when I've got two equally good options? Do they wait for a sign or do they pray and ask God to speak directly to them? No, they do pray. They do pray. But then they cast lots. Why? Is it some kind of magical guidance from the Lord? Well, no, because if that were the case, then they could have done it right at the start, couldn't they? They could have said, we've got 120 people here. Why don't we just cast lots among them? But no, they used their wisdom. And all other things being equal, they then rely on God's sovereign control to choose. They cast lots, they flip a coin. Does that seem impious? Does that seem like a dodgy way of making a decision? One this important? That is an important. Would it matter which one was chosen? Well, when they flip the coin, what are they doing? They're actually trusting God's sovereignty, aren't they? Like Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I know some of you have been wondering about how detailed is God's control over things. Uh, is he just in control of really big salvation history things, like the life of Joseph or the death of Jesus? But maybe he's not so interested in the little details of my life. Maybe he's not really in control of them. Well, what does Proverbs 16.33 say about the level of God's control? Well, if the lot is cast into the lap, that's every decision is from the Lord, then his level of control is down to the level of seemingly random chance events. Like what number comes up when you roll the dice? Now the process that they go through is right, wrong, wise, foolish. And when they can't work out what matters, uh, which one to choose, they flip a coin. So I think this is a really helpful diagram. I can use it in almost any situation to think about the decisions that I need to make. What are the right and wrong choices? Which ones would be wiser than others? And is this an important or a trivial decision? Do I need to spend some time to figure it out? Or can I just flip a coin and trust God's sovereignty? Get on with it. This morning I gave you four propositions about God and his guidance. We can pop them up here. Proposition one, 
was that God in his sovereignty uses everything to guide his people. That's what we see there in Acts, isn't it? They flip the coin, trusting God's sovereignty to guide them about who to choose. Proposition two, God doesn't actually need our conscious cooperation in order to guide us. He can get us where he wants without us even realising. Proposition three, God can use many and various ways to guide us, to reveal his will to us. And proposition four, God promises to use the Bible in his spirit to guide us. But he doesn't promise to use anything else. He can. He doesn't promise to. So let me now add another proposition, proposition five. That within the limits the Bible gives, we're actually free to choose any of the options available to us. Although our, our motives for choosing them do matter. So the Bible is actually saying that you have enormous freedom. You have enormous freedom when it comes to making decisions. You really are free. Well, how do we use that freedom? Ah, well, that's about wisdom. You'll have to be here tomorrow night to explore that. But I hope you hear me when I say that when it comes to making decisions, you actually have lots of right options. It's been built right into our relationship with God from the very beginning. You see, even back in Genesis chapter 2, when God gives the man freedom to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden, except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and So there is a wrong choice. There is one tree that is out of bounds. But there are many, many more right choices than there are wrong choices. Whether they eat an apple or an orange, a plum or a fig, a durian or a pecan nut. No, they're actually free to eat whatever they want. And God will be delighted. It's actually the same when it comes to marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that widows are free to marry whoever they like, provided that he's Christian. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, where Paul is raising a collection for the church in Jerusalem, he gives no rules about how much each person must give. He just says each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give. They're free to decide how much to give. And actually, when you think about it, it's got to be that way, doesn't it? Because what really matters to God is not so much the dollar amount that you give, but your generosity. And if God tells you how much to give, you must give $10, you must give $100, you must give $1,000, then you're actually incapable of being generous. Because it's no longer about generosity. If God tells you how much you can give, he tells you how much to give. You can't be generous, you can only be obedient or disobedient. But God wants us to be generous. Our freedom matters. On top of that, if I need to be told exactly what to do in every decision that I face, then I'm just not going to become mature. I'm not going to become wise. I mean, I would be devastated if in 10 years' time my daughter Emily came up to me and asked if she could play outside. She's eight now, that's a perfectly reasonable question for her to ask me when she's eight. But at 18, I think actually then you've kind of failed as a parent. <laughs> Your daughter has not grown up. 
Yeah, we are God's children, but God wants us to grow to become mature children. Children who act with wisdom and love, whose hearts beat with the same heartbeat as his. Not robots who can only act with explicit instructions. Now, within the area of freedom, we really are free. I suggested at the start that when we come to deciding what are the really big decisions, we often don't have the right criteria. That we've just absorbed things from parents or surrounding culture or various different people, the decisions that they think are important. But God's big concern for me is that I become like Christ. So, what is more important? How you treat people tonight? or whether you get married. Our friends, our culture, maybe even our parents, ourselves, might say, well, obviously, who you marry, that, or whether you marry, that is vastly more important. But actually, it's not. The first one is more important, because the first one is a decision about whether to be godly or not. But whether or not you marry, well, you can be godly in either situation. But which one do you spend more time thinking about? I mean, imagine if you actually spend the time you spend thinking over uh, actually trivial decisions. What if you spent that time thinking and praying about decisions that actually matter? Decisions about godliness. If you took the time to consider how you'll behave at supper time, you prayed that God would help you to act in a way that glorifies him. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? That would be a remarkable thing. I reckon you'd become more like Jesus if you started doing that. But if the Bible is silent on a topic, then the decision is actually at the trivial end of the spectrum. You really are free. But then you say, what about the consequences? Well, yeah. There will be consequences, but they're in God's hands. I say, but surely wisdom comes into it. Yes, it does. We'll look at it tomorrow night. <laughs> but if you're staying within the bounds that God lays out in his word, then although you might make an unwise decision, it won't actually be a wrong one. And God is working in all things, even your poor decisions, for your good. So relax. Trust God. And listen to him when he says what matters matter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to trust what you say to us in your word. That we would believe you when you tell us what matters matter to you. And not just go with our own inclinations or our society, our friends. Father, please reshape our minds and our thinking so that we might become more and more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. For his sake. Amen.